Hello, welcome to another uh, Pharmacy of Practice podcast. So we haven't had a podcast for oh, about a month or so. Um, there's been the small detail of um, coronavirus, COVID-19, that has kicked in, unfortunately. And um, I think all the superlatives of the day are, are rele- relevant um, in terms of how unprecedented the times that we find ourselves in. I think before I start, um, I just wanted to say, um, yeah, thank you to every every pharmacist and health health wider health professional that's on the front line at the moment. Some of the stories that I've seen coming through and that we've we've covered in the last month or so have just been obviously unprecedented, but unbelievable levels of courage and you know our profession. Um, whilst we exist as part of the wider multidisciplinary team, I think pharmacy has really really step forward and we are literally the front line um and 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 now as it was a few weeks ago you know i'm not i'm not saying the gp surgery shut but you know when there was a retreat and a controlling of uh, footfall shall we say into gp practices community pharmacy in particular in particular stayed open and um listen i'm really proud to be part of a profession that uh, that's willing to do that um so it's in that context that um, I I'm pleased actually to introduce um, someone. Now I'm going to sound at the risk of sounding creepy here, Andrea. I've been lurking and following you on Twitter <laughs> probably for about a year. Um, terribly sorry about that. You don't you don't know that I was doing that because I wasn't liking or retweeting until recently. <laughs> but, um, I was there watching and yeah, really impressed with. With, with what you're all about and how you go about your business. So I'd like to, maybe you could introduce yourself, but we've got on the line, um, Andrea James, um, and you'll find her on Twitter at, at Lawyer. And uh, Andrea is a, a regulatory lawyer. Um, and she advises doctors, pharmacists, vets, teachers, and other highly regulated professionals. And um, the, other, uh, the other thing I've noticed from your Twitter feed is that, uh, you you love animals as well, particularly uh, doggies. Is that right? It is true, actually. I I think I probably have more followers connected to the animals than to anything I do in my professional life. Um, but yeah, my husband and I have four rescue pets and um, two dogs and two cats. Although I'm a fan of all animals, um, and it's one of the reasons why I enjoy representing vets before the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. Um, that is very interesting work, both as a professional discipline lawyer and in view of my personal interests. So yes, as you've said, I'm a healthcare regulatory lawyer. So my background is in acting for uh, the National Health Service itself and a number of medical defense organizations um, like MDS and NPS and uh, the National Pharmacy Association and College of Paramedics and uh, uh, basically groups that exist to represent the interests of their healthcare professional members. So that is my involvement in in pharmacy, uh, which ranges from representing people before the General Pharmaceutical Council to dealing with market entry and judicial reviews against NHS England. It's, It's a pretty broad base, although um, a lot of my partners at our firm, Bradners, would probably think that what we do is, is super niche by comparison to, say, the, the corporate or commercial lawyers who will act for people in all kinds of sectors. Um, 
Uh, on the other hand, although we, we only deal with healthcare and veterinary, and uh, we deal with a wide range of stuff within those realms. So uh, thank you for asking me to speak to you today. It's a, a great change from the norm as I'm spending most of my life at the moment uh, home alone. Um, my husband's in the emergency services, so he's out all day. And um, it, it's great to talk to you, frankly. It makes a, a change from the cats and dogs for, for company. <laughs> Although that could be interpreted as sounding a bit offensive, Jonathan. That's not the way I mean it. <laughs> Well, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do something else. You you haven't asked for a plug, but I'm gonna I'm gonna um give your your company a plug as well. So it's Andrea. Um, yeah, to be clear, she hasn't asked for a plug, but I'd like to do that to say thank you for coming on. So her 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 company is Brabners, and you can find uh, find out more about about that law firm at brabners.com. That's b r a b n e r s dot com. So thank that's, you. That's very kind of you. That's all right. That's, that's very kind of you to give up, uh, give us some of your your precious time. So, um, I usually I'm sort of scraping around for news and you know um, trying to dig up a story here and there. But honest to goodness, mm -hmm. the last the last month has just been unbelievable. What what yeah. in legal terms, I suppose, in the pharmacy scene, to bias yeah. it towards that, has astounded you most? Oh wow. Um... That is a difficult one. To be, I mean, I saw a, a meme that said that somebody was saying that they were sick of the unprecedented number of times that the word unprecedented is being used. And I think that was actually a, a great description for what's going on at the moment. And what's really unusual is that you have new law coming out literally on a daily basis. And you'll appreciate that in the ordinary course of events, it takes years and years and years for any legal change to come into effect. You know, think of, for example, all the years we were talking about a defense to dispensing errors or decriminalization of dispensing errors, or, you know, all the years there's been talk about changing the responsible pharmacist regulations. And then we've sort of been cat catapulted from the normality of any change in law taking years to be considered, debated, and then work its way through the legislative process and it has to go through the House of Commons and through the House of Lords. And we now have new law coming in literally daily. So from my perspective, that's the biggest challenge at the moment, the fact that a number of the professions that we act for have new laws affecting them coming in on a daily basis and it's happening at a time when they are incredibly busy doing the day job you know what I'm being told by my community pharmacy colleagues and indeed uh, some of the pharmacists I work with who work in secondary care is that they have never ever ever been busier and um, you know the NPA has put out some statistics indicating that just between February and March alone dispensing volumes were up 25% calls to pharmacies were up about 300% requests for home delivery are up about 300%. So you have an incredibly busy time doing the day job and then there is new law coming out on a, a literally daily basis. And I suppose if I, the, the, to answer your question about what has astounded me, uh, I couldn't say that anything has astounded me as such. It, it, uh, uh, I would like to say that for something really extreme happening. And, I think in terms of what interests me the most is the length of time for which we've been getting legal queries about PPE. So the first time I got a query about PPE was actually back in February. And 
before coronavirus was even receiving widespread coverage um, at all. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it was. That was the. I, I remember distinctly the, the the first call I got from a client about um, coronavirus, and it was about the fact that they had been uh, they had been attending on a patient who had just flown in from Singapore had what we would now recognize as being the classic symptoms of coronavirus and they had no PPE and the NHS trust for which they worked at that time didn't yet have in place any protocol around uh, decontamination and around how to engage with patients in that process about how to isolate them um, and it's fascinating really that in about it's less than two no it would be a little over two months since I got that first call and you know in that two month period think of how the world has changed that the excel center actually i will say that something astounded me the thing that i was the most shocked about was when the excel center was changed into the nightingale hospital because i actually spoke at a conference at the excel center last summer it was in july last year i spoke at the emergency medical services show there and they had 1800 attendees which you know which is a decent number of people and the place with 1800 attendees present the excel was maybe five percent full it, it's the largest conference center i've ever been to and i remember even that from the point the closest point to the conference center that the taxi was able to drop me off it was still a good 15 minute walk and so having been at the excel just last year and having been struck then by how massive it was i was really shocked when they announced the plan to convert it into the nightingale because i appreciated at that point the scale of it how huge this uh how huge both the illness would be that they have the need to um, make a new hospital and also how big that hospital itself would be that it would be dealing solely with patients suffering from coronavirus and that it would take over the XL which is a massive massive place so I think that's mm. that's the, the main event that's happening that I remember being genuinely quite shocked by although we've moved on quite a lot since then of course it, and it's amazing how rapid the movement has been as well. I mean, we've covered, yeah. you know, we were chatting before the the, the podcast here, and 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 I, I'd sort of mentioned that, you know, I'm uh, sort of uh, scraping around for news and so on and so forth usually, and uh, pharmacy is yeah. quite a small world, so so you have to sort of do your best to kind of, um, but but I mean, it's just been. Uh, relentless. Um, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. I think. I think the time, the moment that I realised something was significantly up was when we did a story about, um, you know, the GPHC put out a statement around, um, and I think they said something like pharmacists may need to depart from established mm -hmm. procedures, mm -hmm. and, and that's that's fine, but that just that just put my sort of. Um, uh, pharmacist uh spidey senses up yeah and, uh, I, I was quite nervous about that well not nervous but i was thinking all right what's going on here mm -hmm. and i'm just going to read you some of that just just for the benefit of the listeners so we recognize sure. that in highly challenging circumstances professionals may need to depart from established procedures yeah. in order to care for patients and people using health and social care services our regulatory standards are designed to be flexible and to provide framework a framework for decision making in a wide range of situations the support mm -hmm. profession 
they support they support support is an interesting use, use of that word they support mm -hmm. professionals by highlighting the key principles which should be followed including the need to work cooperatively with colleagues to keep people safe to practice in line with the best evidence etc and mm -hmm. uh, and they also recognize and work within the limits of their competence and to have appropriate indemnity arrangements relevant mm -hmm. to their practice now andrea you're you've made it onto the list of people that I'm going to phone when I get into trouble. Well, fingers crossed, touch wood, but that, that's, that's the best compliment I can give you. And that's what a lot of people listening to this, that's how they'll view you because you, you do guide people through the fitness to practice procedures mm -hmm. and so on. And there's, there's a lot in that wording by the GPHC, which, mm. There's a veneer of reassurance, mm, and mm. I'm not I'm not casting aspersions at all, but I'm mm -hmm. approaching the topic with a questioning mind, and mm -hmm. you know, basically, what's your view on that statement that mm -hmm. they put out? Because surely mm -hmm. they they regulate or they don't. No, I actually think people should be regulated. Uh, should be sorry, I beg your pardon. I think people should be reassured by that statement, and it's important to bear in mind that that is a statement that. And was put out not only by the GPHC, but actually by all 10 of the health and care regulators. And so mm -hmm. the signatories to it include the GMC, the GDC, the GCC, and it also includes even Social Work England and the Scottish Social Services Council. And in my experience, they won't have put out that statement of of their own volition. I think there will there will have been a clear steer from the Department of Health and Social Care that they need to issue guidance to reassure healthcare professionals because the healthcare professionals are going to be working in unprecedented times. And the statement is fair in making the point that the standards are flexible and they are there in many ways to support you and I know that might, using the term support might sound very odd in the context of a healthcare regulator, but where standards can be very helpful is in giving people a framework within which to make decisions. And also, if you are somebody being asked to do something that you think is inappropriate, it gives you something to point to, to say, well, well we can't proceed on that basis because look at this standard and what it says. Um, so I think that the health and care regulators are recognising um, that things are going to happen that would not ordinarily happen. You know, the, the big one, obviously, as you know, in pharmacy is the fact that pharmacists can, in exceptional circumstances now, supply uh, medicines when the RP isn't present. And, you know, who would have thought that we would have seen that change? And what I'm seeing with the other regulators is that they do seem to be adopting a reasonable approach. It is recognised that everyone in healthcare is working in very, very difficult circumstances. And I think there would be very little appetite, both from regulators or from the public, to then be seen to go after healthcare professionals who may have done slightly unusual things. Ultimately, every case has to be looked at on its own merits. Um, and the regulators have reassured people that they will look at the specific environment that they were working in and they will look at 
uh, factors, the resources that were available, the guidance that had been issued because of, you know, new guidance is coming out from different bodies, whether that, you know, Public Health England or the RPS or the GPHC uh, on a daily basis. And I think pharmacists should be reassured by that statement. It does look like some were a little bit too reassured in that, as you know, the GPHC then had to put out another statement saying, hang on a second, we understand some people are now starting to uh, give out medicines um, when the RP isn't present as a matter of course. And we just need to remind you that we have not said that that is okay. We're just saying that is something that can be done in exceptional circumstances. For example, if your RP is taken sick and they need to leave the premises, and in those circumstances, it would be uh, uh, appropriate or acceptable to supply dispensed medicines without the RP being on the premises. But this is not something that you can introduce as a daily custom and practice. So. You know, my impression um, of the health and care regulators at the moment, and I sit on the stakeholder forums for some of them. And um, so by stakeholder forums, they mean groups of people who appear before them regularly that get not so much consulted as informed or engaged with about what they're doing, that there is very much strong momentum in support of supporting healthcare professionals at the moment. Um, and I do think people should be reassured about that. To be honest, I'd be a lot more worried about the funding for pharmacy than anything the GPHC is going to do or maybe planning to do, is my honest opinion. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that that's a fair comment. And, and you know, that's, that's a whole other conversation. But I, I, I've, I've been, I was in the, I find myself in the mainstream media actually um, a few weeks ago um, saying just that. I mean, the GPHC, in my view, have been helpful. They've made really, yeah. they've made good decisions where they could. Um, yeah. Sensible, pragmatic decisions, I think, Andrea. But yeah. at the end of the day, change in a business creates work, um, yeah. and, and that work has to be paid for by someone. I think I, I made the point when I was on. Oh, I was on the B. I was on. I found myself on the BBC News, so I was on there, and I said, you know. Um, community pharmacy particularly have really absorbed a lot of this pressure mm -hmm, that mm -hmm, really mm -hmm. rapidly accelerated. Now it's easing a bit now, I think. Um, different pressures will creep in. Like I think workforce is going to be a big issue now. Uh, mm -hmm. already is. But that initial uplift was really absorbed by community pharmacy and they, they ensured the safe supply of medicines throughout. So kudos there, you know. But what what one question off the back of that I was going to ask you, what mm -hmm. in life in light of our new normal mm -hmm. um, in regulatory terms, sort of like is this uh is this like temporary deregulation? And and if it is, mm -hmm. um what do you think the consequences of that will be in the mm -hmm. medium to long term? Okay, I think we need to be really clear about the fact that there is no temporary deregulation and um, mm -hmm. the, 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 or lack of regulation that uh, pharmacists uh, uh, and pharmacy technicians who hold registration must still comply with the GPHC standards and there's, there's, there's no abandonment or withdrawal of those standards. It's simply that um, 
where you need to do something that is slightly unusual that they will take that into account as in they will take the underlying event of COVID-19 into account when deciding whether a departure from ordinary standards should be the subject of regulatory action or consequence. And so in, 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 in the first place, everybody should proceed on the basis that they still need to comply with the standards for their particular profession, whether that's the GPHD standards for pharmacy professionals or whether it's the General Medical Council standards for doctors. Whoever it is, the, the starting position must still be to comply with those standards. All that the GBHD is doing is saying that if something exceptional happens, like that example we've given of perhaps an RP having to leave the pharmacy because they are they are taken ill with coronavirus themselves, and that in those circumstances the GBHD would not necessarily pursue the kind of action they would normally take if the pharmacy was to go ahead and supply a dispensed medicine that had already been checked, etc. So I don't think there's deregulation at all. Um, it is just that we have a temporary new normal. So a good example or a good comparator in my line of work, for example, is that arrangements are being put in place for people to be able to execute wills remotely, for example. And um, all that's happened is that we have workarounds coming into place but i think it's really important to still be aware of the need to comply with each of the gphc standards and that serious deviations from them that aren't justified by reference to covid19 will still i expect be the subject of regulatory action so that i think that's really important particularly for those who are employees perhaps rather than owners of pharmacies who may be concerned about things that they're asked to do you know that there is no departure from the standards there's no sorry i'm going to correct myself there's no wholesale departure from the normal standards for pharmacy professionals they absolutely do remain in effect fine and I don't know. I don't know how much you've heard coming through yet, but what's your view? And, and the context of this question is that, like my view of pharmacists would would mirror that of 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 a colleague I spoke to recently, Professor Zubin Austin from Canada, and he talks a lot about pharmacists being really cautious. You know, like yeah. we've a low tolerance for ambiguity. We yeah. have like um, we're um, you know procrastinating perfectionists. We have to wait for everything yeah. to be perfect proceed so a pandemic yeah. is it, by through his lens or through the yeah. lens of his research into the insights of what yeah. pharmacists are like yeah. uh, it's an absolute nightmare because there's so mm -hmm. much gray suddenly yeah. into the situation how do you think yeah. um pharmacists are reacting to it i think that pharmacists um are extremely stressed at the moment i think an awful lot of them are really exhausted and are under huge huge pressure and um, in terms of, you know, it's interesting what, where you refer to perfectionism, and um, that is that is absolutely a trait amongst pharmacists and um, who can be very much type A uh, personality types. I would really encourage everyone to read the guidance that was put out by the Royal Pharmaceutical Society just last week, it was on Wednesday last week on the 8th of April, they put out a new guidance 
on they've called it guidance on ethical professional decision making in the COVID-19 pandemic um, and it's amazing that they have pulled together such a good piece of work so quickly and you know they've involved people uh, from across the spectrum pharmacists pharmacy technician people working in primary care and people working in secondary care and people working in public affairs and and what's really interesting is that one of the things they have mentioned in their very opening summary to that guidance is the fact that pharmacists and pharmacy technicians are often by their very nature perfectionists and strive to do their best but that in situations such as we're in at the moment perfectionism can be counterproductive and that people have to content themselves with providing care that is safe and is effective but they certainly have to continue to reach that threshold of safe and effective but it might not be perfect and that you've got to be able to live with that at the moment and, and able to make quick decisions and, and again this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how long it normally takes for any piece of legislation to change or any guidance to change you know think about for example when the GPHC brought in their new standards in 2017. Think about how long in advance of that there were consultations about the new standards um, before they actually were finalised and committed to print. Uh, uh, and now, um, new standards and guidance, are, uh, people are being asked to change their ways of doing things literally overnight. Um, but I would, I would really commend people to read that guidance produced by the RPS because it does contain really helpful guidance on how um, you can help yourself to make decisions um, in, in the context of the current pandemic. And, and I, I think that's very helpful. I think the other thing in terms of how pharmacists are coping at the moment is that an awful lot of people are under really extreme stress. And I would encourage people to try and look after themselves because one of the most common reasons why we end up working with people going through the fitness to practice process is because they are experiencing adverse physical or mental health. Now, adverse physical health is very unlikely to bring one to the attention of the regulator. And I think in all the years I've been a regulatory lawyer, I've only had one case arising from adverse physical health, but we get a lot of cases arising from adverse mental health. Um, and often adverse mental health can lead on to other things, for example, abuse of prescription drugs, for example, or you know, uh, driving under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Um, but in terms of looking after themselves, uh, the NHS ha is pushing out a lot of guidance and support. So um, there's a couple of things I would see, I've seen that I would recommend. The first is there's an app called Headspace, which is a mindfulness meditation app. Now, when I first heard of mindfulness meditation, I have to say it didn't really sound like my cup of tea and that I like to think I'm quite a sensible person. Um, but actually, I think it's invaluable. And there's this great phrase that everybody should meditate for 20 minutes a day unless they're really busy when they should meditate for an hour a day. And I think there's, there's, there's definitely some truth in that, that you've got to find 20 minutes in the day to yourself. Now, Headspace has done a thing where they are giving free membership to everyone in the NHS until the end of the year. All you need to register for that is an NHS 
email address. I was just going to say I've used Headspace um, myself, you? and it's yeah, it's excellent. I, I find it excellent. Yeah. Just I think yeah. just the, the world we live in is so noisy, pandemic or not. Yeah. You know, even pre-pandemic, I think yeah. we're still bombarded with information these days. They might yeah. you have to read yeah. the things you look at, all that stuff. So no, yeah. I've, I've, I and I was quite very like you. I I like to think of myself as sort of very sensible, pragmatic person. Quite, yeah. quite. Um, thankfully, on the level, uh, if if I could yeah. use that term, yeah. Uh, but it really helps. Really helps. Just yeah. to take a minute yeah. or two to to focus on something else. Yeah. Um, and the thing I was looking for that went live last week was that the NHS has launched what they're calling a mental health hotline, and um, for all of those who are on the front line, it's open seven a.m. to eleven p.m. every day on the telephone, uh, but the text service is available 24-7 and maybe you could put the number for that in the, the notes to the podcast so that people have that there if they want to access it. Absolutely, with pleasure. And I want to go on and talk about, um, well, just recap about that RPS document. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I it's a difficult, a difficult to say, but I really, really like the pandemic version of the RPS because stuff is happening so quick. I mean, it's yeah. just like they've, yeah. they've just flipped a switch and they've just unleashed genuinely yeah. all the all the talent in that team. And, yeah. Um, I mean, if you look at if you look at that document, I read it. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at the front cover of it or inside the front cover, the, the breadth of people mm-hmm. in our profession mm-hmm. that are involved mm-hmm. in in reviewing that it's quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it boils down to not a very lengthy document, but it's very potent. I mean, they go down to, mm-hmm. they do mention things that people will worry about, like, um, mm-hmm. you know, the use of, un- uh, the reuse of um, mm-hmm. like the break, kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, or breaking medicines down, breaking boxes down yeah. and things. Yeah, they, they, they cover all kinds of practical examples of things that people might come across. And I think... Mm-hmm. Um, it's incredible, really, that they've pulled it together as quickly as they have. I probably should declare a bit of a conflict of interest in that some of the people who have contributed towards it are on the committee of the Pharmacy Law and Ethics Association with me. And so I'm, I'm not just saying this is a brilliant piece of work before because I know them, or indeed because I know Robbie Turner, who I'm a big, big fan of, dating back to when he was Chief Exec at Community Pharmacy West Yorkshire years ago. Um, so my my as I say my my personal knowledge of any of the people involved doesn't in any way impact on the fact that I think it's a brilliant bit of work that they have produced at such short notice. And the other thing is, which you would have seen yourself, is that the RPS normally to access all its guidance, and they have guidance about everything you can think of from operating a distance selling pharmacy to to advertising medicines. They've made all their guidance free to access at the moment. So whether you're a member of the RPS or not, you can access that guidance. And benefit from it currently which is brilliant absolutely i suppose just to just to finish that to do a wee bit of um public public service broadcasting let's pretend we're the bbc for a minute or two okay, um, <laughs> okay. What, what what advice would you give from a preemptive kind of fitness to practice cautious mm-hmm. approach uh, mm-hmm. advice would you give to pharmacists that are having to make a difficult ethical decision and um, the, the key piece of advice I would give to pharmacy professionals is that uh, to bear in mind that the GBHC standards um, still 
exist and apply despite the fact that we are in a pandemic situation. However, those standards are not rigidly prescriptive. They're, they're actually really quite short and are about principles, really. So, you know, you have to provide person-centered care, you have to communicate effectively, you have to use your professional judgment, you have to speak up when you have concerns. All those professional obligations still apply. Um, however, we are in extraordinary circumstances. And so the decisions you make might well be different to the decisions you would make in a non-pandemic situation. What I would say is that as an autonomous professional, you always just have to be able to justify your own decisions. And provided that you make a decision that is motivated from a perspective of those core principles of providing safe and effective care to patients, you are highly unlikely to come a cropper. There will be different ways to interpret the standards, um, but they may and are highly likely to still be correct, even if another pharmacist would take a different course of action as long as the decision is still considered from that perspective of providing safe and effective care and doing your best for patients. And, and I, I think that's why this RPS guidance is, is very good because they're crystal clear about the fact that um, you know, your decisions have to be reasonable and proportionate and focused on providing safe and effective patient care. Um, but that does not mean that there is a black or white answer or only one correct answer in every given decision. And I think that if you are making a decision that differs from what would be the ordinary course of events, um, just make a record of it. And I know that a lot of people here in this might think, do you think I have nothing better to do with my time than make extra records at the moment? Um, I'm not suggesting that you need to keep a detailed record of every single decision that's made. What I'm saying is that if you're doing something that is highly unusual, um, then keep a record of why you have taken that course of action and the, the reasons why you made that decision. Um, so that if you are subsequently called upon to justify a course of action, you can explain why you exercised your professional judgment as you did, uh, what your motivation was, and the factors you took into account at the time of making that decision. Mm -hmm. I think that advice in combination with, you know, with, with having a look over that RPS document is, is actually, in, in uncertain times, Andrea, it's, it's actually very reassuring. Um, mm. And hopefully, yeah. whilst, whilst pharmacists and, you know, pharmacy technicians as well are bound to be tired and, and, and exhausted many of them mentally sort of fatigued mm -hmm. and so on hopefully they can mm -hmm. you know just stop and remember that and just sort of weigh it up and and gather yeah. all the information correctly and make a good call and then and stand by it. I think Difficult people should feel reassured and um, you know they, uh, certainly the, the noises emanating from all the right places from the Department of Health and Social Care and from the regulatory bodies is that people should feel reassured that the decisions they make at the moment will be judged in context and they will be judged in the context of dealing with an unprecedented global pandemic and you know they're not going to be approached from this perspective of 
uh, hindsight always being 2020, or there's certainly not going to be approached from the perspective of regardless of the pandemic, you should have still followed the exact SOP that applies in a non-pandemic situation. I hope people do feel reassured because certainly the news media from regulatory bodies is not that they are wanting to go after healthcare professionals at all. I'd say there's no unprecedented level of support for healthcare professionals and the work they're doing. And I'm hoping that that goodwill will persist long after uh, coronavirus is, is over and it's just a bad memory for all of us. That's the billion dollar, well, it used to be the $64,000 question, yeah. isn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we're old enough to remember that. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I think that really is looking more broadly at what's happening in wider society. I mean, how much how much of this stuff will stick? Undoubtedly, you know, in wider society, travel will reduce. Um, mm. You know, we're communicating online. You know, some yeah. of the cultural norms around, I mean, I'm, I'm in business, so some of the some of the cultural norms around that are quite interesting to me. I mean, for example, yeah. will will people be comfortable to make agreements online? I mean, there's yeah. there's there's the old cliche about needing to see the whites of someone's eyes and shake their hand yeah. and so on yeah. for a lot of yeah. things in life. So it's, yeah. it's going to be interesting think... times. Um, you're dead right. It is going to be really interesting. And um, you know, one of the things that's of particular interest to me is in relation to witnesses appearing at hearings, for example. If the other side mm. ever applies for a witness to give evidence by way of video link or telephone link, and um, it's well recognised that that is is considered um, inferior to having somebody there in person. Um, and after coronavirus are we still going to make that argument and is it even going to be accepted in the ways it is currently that having somebody appear by way of telephone or video link should not be the norm and it is something that needs to be the subject of a specific application because of the importance of having people there in person we're going to have to wait and see just, my, my cur- sorry go on no, just out of interest, why, why uh, as a non-legal person, why, yes, why is yes. it inferior? Are they less reliable remotely? Or? Uh, so there's a couple of things. It's that, you know the way they say, what is it, 70 or 80% of communication is non-verbal? And um, mm, it certainly felt okay. that you lose something by not having a witness there to give evidence in person because they can communicate much by their demeanour, uh, by their physical reaction to being asked particular questions. And um, that in terms of the their appreciation of the importance of the proceedings, and the obligation upon them to be completely honest. A lot of people would take the view that that is is much more impressed upon a witness when they actually appear in a tribunal and are handed a Bible or another holy book to to swear upon. And so, you know, there's there's ample case law about the fact that, that witnesses should, in the ordinary course of events, be produced in person. Uh, you know, the only circumstances really in which we wouldn't have protracted uh, arguments about witnesses not giving evidence in person would be really where it's impossible or just totally not practicable. So say, for example, the person is given evidence about a very discreet point, and um, so about a minor uh, limited issue in a case, and they live in Kuala Lumpur, well then we might all agree to be given evidence by way of telephone or video link, but otherwise 
you know, witnesses being produced in person is absolutely the norm uh, and it's considered quite essential. And um, particularly if the witness gives evidence regarding serious allegations against a professional, uh, the professional is absolutely expected to have the opportunity to cross-examine that witness in person. And it's going to be really interesting in the post coronavirus world to see if that is the norm. My own view, now that I've done meetings with clients uh, 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 over video conference or telephone conference, I do think you lose something from not having that in-person interaction. I think where we're probably going to see more of the changes in the business world in relation to people working from home, because a lot of businesses for many years have had negativity towards working from home, and it's been, you know, certainly in more traditional law firms, working from home has almost been considered to be um, having a bit of a laugh or having a bit of a jolly rather than genuinely working from home. And now that uh, all businesses, but, but law firms in particular, have seen all their staff convert to working from home without a downturn in productivity, I think any of those more old-fashioned law firms that have been re resistant to that kind of remote working, I think that their objections will, will just be withdrawn after all this now that we've seen that people can do it successfully. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're meandering, which is good, but uh, on that note, I, I have, on one hand, it's it's good, Working from home is fine. I've been doing it myself for oh, full time since November now. But um, oh, yeah. so you do get used to it, and and it is different. Um, I interestingly, I find myself going to my own body clock. So I'm a night owl. So if I'm not yeah. careful, especially on the school holidays when the kids are home, I'll I'll just gradually take turn day into night. Yeah. But, but then, yeah. Them, them going back to school kind of resets me again because I have to get up in the morning and not you know I can't afford yeah, to stay yeah. So the yeah. other thing around that is childcare. And I yeah. have a concern that it, on one hand, it's great that let's say moms can stay at home and have their kids and, and work alongside looking after them. But I think yeah. it's, a, it's a dangerous precedent to set that they, they should be expected to do both. I think there needs yeah. to be protections put in there because there's a temptation for working moms working from home just not mm -hmm. to put their kids to childcare, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose there might be temptation, but I, I don't see how you, I mean, most of the the big law firms I've worked in have had very clear policies about the fact that if you're working from home, you can't also be doing childcare. And that wasn't actually because the firms were concerned about getting their pound of flesh out of the employee. It's that the firms were concerned about any potential liability to them if the child had an accident because they weren't being supervised because the parent that was supposed to be supervising them was engaged doing something, a work task for the firm. So, the yeah, so what I, one of the things I have been surprised by is that uh, within my own firm and many other law firms, the first people to come and say, could we possibly be furloughed, which obviously isn't an issue that's, that's going to be used much in if at all in pharmacy but the first people to come and say could we possibly be furloughed were working parents whose children were no longer able to attend school because schools had closed and they were saying it is actually impossible for me to do my job and mind the children at the same time it, it just it cannot be done and um, uh, you know and I, and I would absolutely sympathize with them because uh, I don't see how you could mind a couple of small children 
and do a job at the same time. And um, I'm not a parent myself, so I can't, I, I certainly can't tell, well, I have 15 nieces and nephews, so I'm, I, I have some experience of, of the, uh, how tricky it is to keep small children entertained and frankly alive uh, when you're just looking after them in the ordinary course of events. So the idea of trying to function doing a job as a lawyer or, or any other job that, that requires your concentration and mind children at the same time, I think would be impossible, really. Yeah. Um, kids are gloriously unpredictable. Um, <laughs> yes. Did you ever see that fantastic video with the expert on North Korea who was talking? He was um, giving an interview to the BBC World Service and his little girl burst into the study. It is just the, yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, it's <laughs> phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. It, we, we've never spoken actually uh, before. No! So it's been, it's been absolutely lovely. A breath of fresh air, you are, Andrea. Very good to talk to you. <laughs> and lots of stuff there that folk can hopefully um uh, hopefully maybe feel they're not on their own you know um, no they're definitely we, not we they're definitely not i mean we can't sort out all those gray areas but there's a lot of information and advice you've given there that's that's really really good so thank you very much no look it's an absolute pleasure to speak to you thanks for inviting me on um and if i could do anything else to assist of course give me another call um but yeah thanks very much for your time it's been lovely to chat to you too Absolutely. I'm afraid I will be in touch again. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a threat. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, good to great. talk to you and I'll, I'll see you soon, Andrea. Thank you so much. Okay, great. No, no, absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for your time as well.